What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now let's build something. Today, our guest is Edwin Harris, the co-founder and design principal at Evoke Studio Architecture, a design firm based in Durham, North Carolina. He is also a professor of architecture at NC State University. Prior to starting his own firm, he worked at Perkins & Will, the Freelon Group, and Duda Payne Architects. We will be talking about the new elementary school that Evoke is designing for Durham Public Schools. More broadly, we will talk about the extreme challenges in getting quality schools built and operating. Thank you so much for being here with us, Edwin. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So let's start out. Why are you a architect? I'm an architect in short because of my grandfather. And so I was raised part of my life by my grandparents. And when I went to go live with them, my grandfather noticed that I was really into art. I loved drawing. I drew cars and designed shoes and all this sort of stuff. And I really wanted to do that growing up. But I couldn't figure out what that was called. I later learned that was industrial design. But my grandfather couldn't figure it out either. And at that point, he was like, look, maybe you should just be an architect. And I was like, OK, I'll be an architect. And so when I took a um, drafting class, I fell in love. I really loved the idea. One, I loved drawing. But the idea of being able to get paid to draw and to design stuff was something that I was just enamored with. And so because of that, I eventually went to go on to pursue architecture. I think uh, for me, I actually had my grandfather as my inspiration as well. So when I decided to leave working for a real estate developer, Extel Development, to start my own firm, I named it in honor of my grandfather, so Amanath Properties. And in particular, I think the, the skill of observation is something I really value and I think is really important. And that's something that he really emphasized as well. So, for example, when he came from Pakistan to live with us in the United States, uh, he had said the first week when he was here, he's like, uh, Atif, can you find me a synagogue to go to and a church to go to in the town? And I was just so confused because Banana <laughs> John, that's what he called grandfather. Uh, we're not Jewish and we're not Christian. So why would we go there? And he said, uh, there's a lot of things that you can learn from people that are very different than you. And then I was like, like, what? And, and then he said that they aren't that different from you. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, that's amazing. I, I think it's interesting to hear you speak about your, your grandfather that way. I think for me, you know, a lot of people could look at being raised by your grandparents in a, you know, is a different as a detriment, but it was a real mm-hmm. opportunity for me because if you think about it, at least for me, my grandfather is 91 years old. And so he is a child of the depression, mm-hmm. depression era. And I think, you know, as a society, we forget a lot. We really forget about, we have a very short term memory. And I think the perspective of those who are older than us, the lessons that they learn and the lens in which they view the world, not that it's right or wrong, but it's different. And it's something that we can learn from. And so I, I think about my grandmother and my grandfather, and I think, you know, I replay a lot of the lessons and a lot of the insights that they had about the world. Um, and I kind of test it through the lens that I have now. Mm-hmm. It's just really interesting. So no, I, I really appreciate that story. That's really fascinating. So there were a number of, I guess, applications that you made. And then I believe there is an architect named Phil Freelon who's helped shape your career uh, going forward. Could you tell us about him? Yeah, Phil absolutely was a tremendous impact and mentor for me. And his first impact on me was me actually getting into design school. And so the way that occurred is after the uh, second time of me not getting in, I was still adamant about becoming an architect. And I wanted, if I had to transfer to go to a different school, I was going to do that. My grandfather, he found, you know, architects in the area and he found uh, Phil Freelon. He actually called a couple others before and they either weren't mm-hmm. willing to meet with me or they kind of brushed me off. But Phil actually was willing to meet with me. And so this is uh, my freshman year of college. And so um, I met with Phil on a good Friday in April. And he basically sat down with me. He said, look, you know, this is not the first time at the time, you know, NC State, in terms of African-American presence in the architecture program, it was pretty low, very low. And that was something that he mm-hmm. was really adamant about championing in terms of getting more African-Americans into the school that were qualified. And so he looked at, you know, my drawings, my portfolio, and he was like, there's no reason why you shouldn't be in design school. And so he uh, had me contact the associate dean of uh, student affairs. Her name is Marvin Motley. And I showed her my work. And then from there, I was able to actually get into design school. And so he started off getting me into design school. He didn't know anything about who I was or who I was, you know, likely to become, but he, you know, was willing to vouch for me and that helped me get into design school. And we can talk more about his impact as we started to work uh, with each other later on. Absolutely. Could you talk about the time that you spent uh, working at his firm? Yeah. So fast forward, I ended up, you know, graduating from design school in 2005 and I ended up working with uh, Due to Pain Architects, and I worked for them, you know, almost uh, three years. And then at some point, I actually just saw Phil out and about one day, mm-hmm. and I knew that he had just gotten the commission to do the programming for the National uh, Museum of African American History and Culture, which is just the programming component of it. But I was like, you know what? I want to work on that museum and I, I got to be a part of that. And I saw him out and he said, you know what? You interested in working with me? And I was like, absolutely. And so he, you know, brought me in and he said, look, you know, I see your design talent. 
and that's something I want to take advantage of. And I want you to, you know, be a part of this. And so I immediately gravitated toward that and I went to go work with him. And so in 2008, I worked with him almost nine, well, right at nine years. And so while I was there, we worked very closely together in terms of any project that he was working on, I would usually be the project designer or the lead designer for. And so I was able to work on the Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. And then uh, that was a competition, so an international competition. And then also the uh, competition, which we were, you know, teamed with uh, David Ajay, Smith Group, Davis Brody Bond, or the uh, National Museum of uh, African-American History and Culture. And then I worked on, uh, I was the lead designer for Emancipation Park in Houston, Texas. So I am forever indebted and grateful to Phil for one, me even becoming an architect, period. But then also the design opportunities that I, I got, you know, an opportunity to work on. One of the things I tell people a lot is Phil, he could have easily hoarded the, you know, the design to himself, but he identified people he felt had, you know, talent and he gave them opportunities. And so that's something that I really appreciate that he was willing to do that. And he empowered, you know, empowered me and inspired me to, you know, continue to work and which is why uh, we started Evoke. So speaking of starting Evoke, uh, after working at the Freeline Group, you had an opportunity to work at Perkins and Will. What was that experience like? And how did you know that it was time to start your own company? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. The Freeline Group was purchased by Perkins and Will in 2014. So March of 2014, that's when the acquisition happened. And for me, you know, Perkins and Will is a global firm. I think at the time it was 2,000 people. And that was fine. There was nothing wrong with that. But I think for me, I was very proud to work for the Freeline Group, you know, an African-American-owned firm. We did mostly cultural and higher education work. And I think at the time, while we were still doing some cultural work, at least the, the office here locally, we were veering more, more toward healthcare. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with healthcare. Healthcare design is very important and very critical to our world. But that wasn't what I was drawn to. I was really drawn to more of the, the cultural, you know, uh, higher education, those libraries, museums, parks. Those are the things that really I was drawn to and ex- excited about. Mm-hmm. And I also was excited about more kind of an intimate setting in terms of the size of a firm. And so because of that, you know, I decided that me and my partners, we decided it was time to do something different. And so we ended up starting Evoke Studio. So we're, you know, a local firm and mm-hmm. we really do specialize in creating work that specifically, you know, most of our work is public. I mean, most of our work is very much, you know, rooted in, you know, the idea of trying to make the world better. And so that's that's really the thing that we wanted to take away from it. And when I, you know, I told Phil, I remember the day I told him, it was January 16th, 2017. I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. I sit in his office and I tell him, and he just kind of put his head down. And he was like, you know, I'm disappointed, but I'm proud at the same time. Yeah. And he said, you know, anything I can do for you, I'm going to do. And he's like, you know, you have the talent and the ability to do it. And, you know, I believe in you. And so he ended up coming to our grand opening 
and giving a speech, which I wasn't prepared for him to do that. And so I really appreciated that. So, yeah. So that's how Evoke started. That's terrific. Uh, I think the the role of mentors in uh, education and career can't be underestimated. And particularly, I think, in our field, which is one that has traditionally had many barriers to participation and also the fact that it tends to be one where you have to have a lot of experience in order to become very competent in what we do because of all the different asset classes we work in, all the different geographies and all the different types of of customers or clients. So I definitely can, can appreciate that. Absolutely. Let's switch over to the project that we're focusing on today, which is the new elementary school. Tell us about the particular site. What makes it unique? What are the opportunities? What are some of the challenges uh, that the site afforded you? Yes. So again, this project is really amazing. The site is interesting because again, Durham, Raleigh, Chapel Hill is really booming. Um, It's growing rapidly. And a lot of the land that was once prevalent in terms of it was really easy to build large one level schools throughout North Carolina. And that's no longer the case, particularly in the Triangle area. And because of the population growth, Durham really needs additional schools. And so this is a 33-acre piece of land that's fairly adjacent to downtown Durham. And it is fairly, it is a green site, a greenfield site, because I think the last time it was really developed was probably in like the 40s. There was a farm. It was a farmland in the 40s. And Mm -hmm. it's terraced pretty, you know, a lot. There's probably about 60 feet of grade change on the 33-acre site. Mm-hmm. And so what's interesting about this is obviously because there's so many subdivisions around it, it is kind of this pocket or this oasis of a green untouched forest area. And so that's something that DPS is very sensitive to. And we were as well. You know, we're really careful about. Just for one second, a DPS stands for DPS Durham, Durham Public Public Schools. Schools, I'm sorry. And so we're really careful about that because, again, you don't want to take away you know, a resource like that, a natural resource mm-hmm. like that. And so one of the challenges and one of the charges for them uh, to us was how can we retain as much of this site as natural area as possible? And we fully embraced that because that was something that we believed in as well. And so mm-hmm. uh, the current design really only uses a, a roughly a third of the area. The other area is going to be undisturbed. And this is, you know, an 800 student elementary school. So it is not small, 133,000 square feet. So these are things that we were able to to minimize the footprint and then really think about how we could sustainably and and lightly touch the site as much as, as lightly as a 133,000 square foot building. (laughs) But, you know, it's funny because it is typical that for most elementary schools in North Carolina, you want them as one level, Mm-hmm. You bulldoze the site, you flatten the site, and you clear cut everything, and that's that's what it is. But this is atypical in that fashion because of what they asked us to do. And so mm-hmm. we, you know, fully embraced that. And again, I think it made for a really fantastic design, and it's an experience that I'm really excited to to see uh, kids and parents interface with. I very much appreciate what you described, which is. The norm, not just in school construction, but I think particularly in multifamily construction as well, is the idea of clear cut and then build on top of it. And in 2021, I had the opportunity to do essentially work from home road trips 
all year. So I spent 12 months in uh, about 30 different cities that were all within driving distance of New Jersey. So I was in Durham actually for two weeks. And uh, what I found is that some of the most unfortunate constructions were the ones where I couldn't tell whether I was in Jersey City or Durham or Jacksonville. Yeah. Or it literally looked exactly the same. And I think some of the absolutely most memorable ones were the ones that took advantage of the site characteristics that presented uh, materials and forms that were unique to that city in that area and actually used a bit of forethought in, in advance of making that first uh, shovel in the ground. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. So then particularly in this site, you mentioned that huge grade change. The first thing I thought of right away is that'll make for a really a slick snowboarding or like a sledding hill. <laughs> what were yeah. some of the ways that, how did you try to incorporate that grade change without having to do like a lot of, yeah. of cut? So that, that was the other thing that was really helpful for us because of the grade change. What we incorporated is one, we have a fairly compact site. The other thing that's important to know is that site has a lot of rock. Mm, so okay. because it has so much rock, the more you try to build, you have to be pretty strategic about where you build to try to avoid the rock, which would incur a lot of costs. But the grade mm -hmm. change allowed us to kind of reduce the amount of cut and fill that we had to, to implement. And because we're able to do a multi-level elementary school, we were able to, again, have a smaller uh, footprint. Now, what we also did this uh the design for this is almost it's, it's a courtyard in some ways, but the courtyard is actually falling down the hill and falling down the topography. And so um, the media center and the art wing is actually a bridge. The building is actually a bridge. And underneath that bridge. So you pass through the, uh, the courtyard. You actually can pass through to the open wooded area. And underneath that bridge is actually a play environment mm -hmm. for the students. So. You know, rain, snow, shine, they can always play outside in a covered area if they wanted to. So there's the ability for that. There's also the ability, obviously, with COVID and the pandemic, the outdoors has become a lot more kind of important in terms of mm -hmm. providing that flexibility and people feeling safer outdoors in terms of air quality. And so there's mm -hmm. covered areas for eating outside. And we think there's something really powerful about that in terms of mm -hmm. just being connected back to nature. Um, the other thing I didn't mention about this site is there's a significant stream that's on this site as well. And so there's a fairly large stream buffer. And this courtyard that we have actually opens out to the stream. And so I think that, you know, that's going to be a very tremendous opportunity for the students to learn about the ecology of the area. And so there's no better example. You can read it in the books. You can see it on YouTube and television. But I think being able to see and have nature trails that go out to the stream and go down throughout the, the site is going to be really uh, powerful for them. And so DPS is very, you know, ambitious about this. And this was something mm -hmm. they were intentional about from the onset. And so, you know, we were, you know, again, pleased to be a part of that. So speaking of, of DPS and being a part of the process, what did that process actually entail? Was the were they did they call you or was there a process of submitting applications or how did it work? Yeah, this was actually a public bid. So you basically it was a public RFQ. We responded to it. Uh, we were fortunate enough to get shortlisted. But what was interesting, you know, at the time we did not have 
extensive K through 12 experience. So to your earlier point about, you know, architecture being difficult if you don't have the experience to thrive in, mm-hmm. we did not have that experience. But what they wanted was what we specialized in, which is they wanted something authentic and specific to the site. Mm-hmm. And they were really drawn to what our ethos is in terms of our goal is to create buildings that are that make the world better. That's literally it's as simple as that. And we speak to that all the time. And we provided other examples of public buildings that thought differently and that kind of thought of a way to inspire people. And in our mm-hmm. interview, when we interviewed with them, we talked about how do we create an experience for students that is inspiring? And mm-hmm. they were captivated by it. And that was the only thing they talked about. They didn't speak about what our past experience was in terms of how many schools have you done? You know, because that's usually the thing. How many schools mm-hmm. that are specifically like this have you done within 75 miles of this area? If you say that, there's no way that we can qualify for that. But they weren't that way. And so they really were just, again, drawn to what they believe that we we brought to the table and they wanted to try something different because it would have been easy for them to go with a, a firm that had done, you know, 50 of these. Mm. And I think what it sounds like is if that requirement is set on a decision making process, it feels like it's the same old people that will always be designing because you can from the jump have 50, 50 projects they already designed, right? Exactly. I mean, and if you can say that, well, they didn't meet the qualifications, no one's going to meet that qualification if that's the qualification that you set. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I applaud them. And I think we've done what we can do to show that this was a worthwhile gamble that they took on, on us because I think mm-hmm. something really special came from this. And, you know, it's not from our own doing. It's it's a collective team effort that we are where we are right now. And I think what I have so much respect for is the area of focus for your firm in terms of institutional and public projects is uh, so different than, say, firms that focus on multifamily or office or industrial, namely because there is really no particular and user that they they know of. It's always through the context of their developer. And I think in the types of projects that you do, and particularly in the school, I think that I'm imagining that your process of customer discovery, your process of understanding your stakeholders from students to parents to neighbors to cafeteria and ground staff to teachers and beyond, that that was an intense part of this process. Tell me about how those early parts of your process worked before you actually started doing floor plans and elevations and schematics, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's one of the things that's critical about public work, right? Public work is one, the funds are usually finite Mm -hmm. and they usually don't build very often. These buildings need to be here for 50, 60, 7,500 years and they need to function well. And so from an engagement standpoint, you have a broad array of people that you're going to interface with. So like for the Mm -hmm. school, not only are we, you know, hearing from the administrators, we're hearing from the teachers, we're hearing from parents, we're hearing from students. We have public engagement sessions. We've had them before we even started, to your point, before we even started designing the actual school. What is your vision for the new you know, public school? And what would you want? What do you want to feel like when you're there? And so all these things, you know, are things that we took into account. 
And then Mm -hmm. everything, you know, throughout the entire process, Durham Public Schools has been very intentional about asking the question, if we do this move, is this actually hitting the mission statement of Durham Public Schools? You know, in their school, their mission is about igniting the imagination and the potential Mm -hmm. of their students. That's what they say at every meeting. Is this going to help the students achieve that goal? And that's something that, again, as a wayfinding kind of goal for us to kind of always test against, it's really powerful because, again, unfortunately, most school systems, particularly in North Carolina, that's not the way they go about it. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times they look at schools as commodities and just buildings that have to kind of serve a purpose, just get it built and let's put the students in there and the space doesn't matter. But the reality is these buildings actually impact the way people learn. There's plenty of studies mm-hmm. to talk about the spaces in which you live really affect how you see the world and how you learn and in your overall health and well-being. All those things matter. And it's a real investment. It's not just an investment in the building at the time, but it's a real it's an investment in the future and those who actually inhabit that space. And I think Durham Public Schools, they haven't always been this way, but now the new administration, I think they've really said, you know what, it's time to look at things differently. And so Mm -hmm. because of that, this is where we are. That's excellent. So uh, you mentioned a couple numbers and I want to make sure I got those right. So 33 acres, 133,000 square feet, and your budget was how much? It's 55 million for construction. 55 million, and it's meant to serve 800 students. 800 right? students, yeah. Okay, cool. Any other things that we should know about number-wise to understand the scope of what's what's going on here? Uh, I think the the thing I'm proud of is, again, we're really only disturbing uh, one-third of the site. Mm, good point. Yeah. yeah. And you said two stories? Two and a half stories. Two and a half stories, great. So schools involve lots of materials because they have to be fully built out with all the technology, the equipment, the furniture, which is a little different than, say, a condo building or a rental building, which the end user is meant to finish all of that stuff. So what are the issues that you have seen or you foresee will need to be mitigated? And how is the project team mitigating those those construction issues? I think there's there's a lot of issues. Uh, one, given the time in which we live right now in terms of supply chain issues mm-hmm. and availability of materials. So the price of steel, the availability of, of insulation, paint, like there's like white paint pigment right now is there's a shortage of that. There's all these different things. Time to paint other colors then, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is awesome, right? We can do that. But I think, you know, thinking about those things on top of just the actual like pragmatics of how do you build a school in terms of durability? Like we, we said earlier, you know, these schools are meant to be here for, you know, 50 years plus. Mm-hmm. And so creating something that's durable, but also safe and tactile enough for these are elementary school students. And so you don't want to create a fortress either, mm-hmm. but you also wanted to be, you wanted to be welcoming. You wanted to be safe. You wanted to be secure. So it's got to do all these different things, some of which are kind of diametrically opposed. But what we've done, we've done a lot of research. We've done that. We've been really fortunate, one, because most of the projects we worked on have been public buildings. Mm-hmm. And so we have a pretty good idea of which 
materials work well long term in terms of holding up to a lot of, you know, not intentional abuse, some intentional abuse, some just, you know, love, quote unquote. But that's been something that we have to work with as well. And then also within the framework of what does Durham Public Schools need in terms of the type of uh, furniture they're used to using mm-hmm. for their students, the standard equipment. And then if they have any, you know, the special needs students, what do they need? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, serving a lot of different users, uh, but making sure that we're considerate of, you know, the feel of things, how bright things are. And then overall way, wayfinding again, elementary school students, they're very young. This is, going to be a large school for them. So how do you make sure that what we build is approachable for them and doesn't feel like this scaleless thing that has endless corridors that they don't know where they're going? I think that there is something so beautiful in these ideas that you've described, which is how do you present a place that is welcoming, but safe and secure? How do you present a place that can be flexible and adjustable, but still allow people to find their way from from A to B. And I think in particular, what what your description made me think of is I was in Georgetown for the past two weeks in D.C. And when I would go for runs, I would see the embassy of France looks like a bunker. The embassy of Germany looks like a bunker. The embassy of Canada looks like a bunker. And it makes you realize that as architects there, it, it isn't a matter necessarily of discounting all of those very, very salient, important issues, but perhaps there's a way to do it without foregoing beauty and without foregoing a positive environment. And it sounds like that's something that, that you've really took to heart on this project as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. If, if the building looks like a bunker, then we have not done our job at all. The reality is, again, we have to create a safe environment. However, that is not the top priority of of Durham Public Schools. The top priority Mm -hmm. is how do you create an environment that inspires the students and ignites their potential? In doing so, it needs to be safe. It needs to be secure. Mm -hmm. But the top priority is it's got to inspire and it's got to help them reach their potential. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we've worked with their security, the security staff. And, you know, what's really been encouraging is before, you know, as opposed to just saying, nope, that won't work. That's the last thing we hear from them. What we hear Mm -hmm. from them is, okay, well, this is what we would need to make this work. And that's incredibly encouraging. When you come at it from that standpoint, as opposed Mm -hmm. to a defeatist mentality from why this won't work, why we can't provide more transparency in, in classrooms, why, why we can't do certain things or why this has to be fenced everywhere versus, you know, strategically located, that changes everything. And Mm -hmm. so, again, it it takes buy-in from everyone, not just the designers, Mm -hmm. the clients and the users. Everyone's got to buy into it in order for this kind of, you know, synergy to happen. So I had a chance to uh, interview Ann Rowland, who is a partner at FX Collaborative, and she's one of the leads of the firm's uh, school studio. So her entire career has been built on doing schools all across the country. Many of them are in New York City. And what she had mentioned in one of the projects is there was a particular concern for that project about uh, safety for the students because of the area that was located. And uh, what they had come to the conclusion is that there is no number 
of bomb-proof walls. There's no number of fences. There's no number of barriers that are going to prevent everything from happening. But there is a conscious decision that can be made to lead and to design with love as opposed to fear. And what she said particularly is that they came up with creative ways to say, you know what, let's augment the staff. And during key times of when students are coming and going, let's have extra staff outdoor, just looking and seeing what's happening. And perhaps that might be enough without having to build a four foot concrete wall around everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think, again, it's it's a mentality too, right? Mm -hmm. Like, because again, you can try to like, I've worked on plenty of public projects, whether it was the Smithsonian, where there are real like requirements for blast proof, you know, stopping truck bombs, all those things. Those are things that we had to consider. Mm-hmm. And you realize, you know, you can mitigate to some point, but at some point, you know, mm-hmm. you, you, if you want this to not look like a, you know, a prison, which again, unfortunately, you know, that, I'm not going to go on a tangent, but. I think that is <laughs> we love tangents on the show, Dory. <laughs> you said, you know, I think yeah. it's really unfortunate that there are a lot of schools that if I look at the floor plan or I look at the school, I can't differentiate outside of the barbed wire and razor fence. I can't differentiate that from, you know, a correctional facility. I think that's problematic. I think that's very problematic. And I think, you know, as a society, we have to look at things again. And I think you you spoke about that before about, you know, you come to a different city and you look around, and you're like, man, I could be anywhere, anywhere in the United States. There's no specificity. There's no authenticity about where we are. And I think we have to embrace that, you know, that specificity. And really, honestly, is an effort. thing. You kind of have to try harder mm-hmm. to say, you know what? Building matters. Building is an investment of resources and it's an investment in people. And I think, you know, whether it's doing public work or doing private work and, you know, housing, that level of investment is important all around. I think that's what would make our built environment better. I really believe that. I think that I've had the opportunities. I'm a trustee of a private school in Hoboken, New Jersey, I call the Hudson School, and I'm a city planning commissioner in the city as well. So both have given me very, uh, and we actually just, the city just floated a bond for a $270 million bond for a new high school, which got a lot of press because of its size, the amount of money. Uh, And I think I I have this, this stronger understanding now about how, as someone with an authority over the future of a school or the future of the, the city overall in terms of a planning commission, is there's a very deeply cynical approach one can take to public construction and to say, whatever's the fastest, whatever is the cheapest. And yeah. I think there is something that perhaps you get, you get that building fast and sure it's there, <laughs> but uh, there's something incredible that you lose as well. And I think the the more folks that I hope have enlightened perspectives like ours that have the capacity and have the time and the ability to take on public roles, then maybe we'll get less schools that look like prisons. Yeah. And I think there's the other thing in which you spoke about, which I, at least it made me think about is, you know, if you're planning these things and you're on the planning commission, I think it's easy and it's not lost on me that budgets are real. You know, I, I understand that, but I also want, you know, 50 years from now, that the next person on the planning commission who's looking back at the the things that have been built 
that they don't look back and say, what on earth were these people thinking? They left us with this mess that we have to clean up. Mm-hmm. 100%. So all these amazing things, all these beautiful ideas that you have, have put in, have been cooked into this, this amazing building. Walk us through the building as it'll be when it's complete. Like say if I move from New Jersey, North Carolina with, with two little kids and I'm sending them to the school, what are, what are they going to see when they walk through? I think the before you even get to the site, as you're coming up uh, South Roxborough, the, the site, like I said, is roughly about 60 to 70 feet of grade change that you're going to arrive through. And so as you come up, the, the building's actually, you won't see it from the street. It's actually a wooded site. Again, we're creating, uh, keeping most of the, the site wooded, which we're really proud of. But mm-hmm. as you drive in, you'll see the building's actually uh, situated at the highest point of the site. And so it is going to be kind of a beacon. So you'll get a little glimpse of it from the treetops because it's, it's heavily wooded, mostly uh, pine trees. These pine trees are, you know, they range from 40 feet to 70 feet tall. So they're very tall. I mean, that's really, really interesting. And then there's a really cool canopy or wrap feature that really is, it's got a, a golden color to it. So it's really vibrant. I mean, there's a really kind of, it points its way to the entry. As we mm-hmm. said before, this is more of a courtyard design, which is very intentional because of the size of the school. We wanted to make sure that mm-hmm. there was no long corridors. And so we were able to reduce the size of the corridors. And so the inside of the courtyard is mostly glass. And so mm-hmm. no matter where you are in the building, you know where you're going to go. So you never worry about how do I get to this next area? So you always are connected to light. You always connected to the outdoors. And I think that's something that's really interesting because of the way the courtyard is situated uh, at the end of each corridor, it opens out. There's a window opening to the wooded area. So you're always connected to nature. Mm-hmm. And as, as you're on the upper floors, you really get these great views and great vistas out into the woods. And you can actually kind of see into the, the tree canopies. And so, as you move outside and in the courtyard, again, you can see the media center that's really almost a bridge. It's literally a bridge. Um, there's no columns underneath mm-hmm. it. It's spans, clear spans. You see the uh, the play area underneath. And then as you move underneath the bridge, you're open out into the wooded area that's facing the stream. So, again, that stream is roughly 100 yards away from the school. So you're really immersed in nature. I think it's going to be incredibly dynamic. I, I cannot wait. I'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we'll be having the wonderful Lewis Shump on the show next month. Lewis is the creative director at Gensler, the San Francisco-based design firm with over 50 offices worldwide. We'll be talking about the Westside Pavilion project in Los Angeles. Subscribe to the podcast and check out our past episodes at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Redist is a new venture-backed technology company that is working to transform how public financing is used to encourage building construction across our country. The Real Deal recently featured the company after our $1.9 million seed round of financing that included San Francisco-based hedge fund Park West and New York Ventures, the venture capital division of Empire State Development. Learn more about why these companies are making a big bet on Redist at redist.us. Finally, finding the right building materials for a home renovation 
can take a ton of time and effort, and tile is no different. I often buy from Garden State Tile, which has multiple showrooms in the Mid-Atlantic area, including one right here in downtown Princeton. Uh, they have standout tiles at price points for everything from my workforce housing projects all the way to single-family home renovations. Check them out at gstile.com. Okay, let's go bigger picture. So uh, you've done work for educational institutions like Duke and South Carolina State. And this project is, you have two current projects that are public schools, both this one and one, uh, I believe, nearby in North Carolina as well. So as you're getting going with these projects on the boards, tell us a little bit more about what public schools in North Carolina look like now. I mean, I think, again, I don't want to you know, put everybody in a mass generalization, but I do think it's important to know the, the, mm-hmm. the landscape in North Carolina mm-hmm. is historically schools have been seen really more as a commodity. Uh, one land mm-hmm. uh, historically has been kind of bountiful and it's really easy to just, you know, clear cut a site and build something as fast as possible. I think the other thing that is important to know is how fast North Carolina in general has has been growing people have been transplanting planning into North Carolina, there's been a need to build schools relatively fast, but there's also been this balance of fiscal responsibility, quote unquote. And the idea is, you know what, how can we build these schools as, you know, economically, you know, as cheap as possible, quite frankly. And I think mm-hmm. that has been problematic. So what has happened in North Carolina, there is a prevalence of prototype schools. And so you go mm-hmm. from one city to the next city, one community to the other community. They're the same schools, you know, maybe situated a little bit differently on the site, but ultimately it's the same thing. That's a result of the budgets being very tight. There's also, because of that, the design fees for architects is very low. So a lot of architects, you really can't even afford to actually try to design something specific. I mean, you just, you don't have the time nor the, the, the ability to do so. And so these prototypes have been prevalent throughout uh, the state of North Carolina specifically. And so that has basically caused this kind of ubiquitous kind of, you know, uh, generic way of creating schools, quite frankly, because of one, it's a, a really kind of complicated mess of budgets, population, time and then land availability all those things have, have made for a very challenging climate with regard to uh, designing schools or elementary schools in particular so uh, all of that said talk to us about the process of school development in this state so are these typically uh, like bond offerings that are issued or yes. how, how does that work so for public schools it's typically bond bond referendums okay. And again, so this is public money. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, the politics of it are important to, to mention as well. Right. Because it's easy to say, well, we're going to cut spending mm-hmm. and we're going to, you know, we're going to cut spending and we're not we don't we don't need to spend this much on schools. And then there's also the issue of equity. Right. Because equity comes into play, too, where if I gave this neighborhood, this school. It can't be nicer than this school over in this neighborhood when the reality is they all should be nice. Mm -hmm. But because of deferred maintenance and budgetary issues, 
And quite frankly, over the, you know, historically, there have been the haves and have nots. There have been, you know, intentional places where there's resources have been given to certain places that weren't given and allocated for other places. So all it's a real fine mess that you have to kind of sift through to get to why, why we are where we are. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, it, it is problematic because you're seeing all this stuff bubble to the surface and it's under the guise of fiscal responsibility. And I think there has to be a balance and there, there has to be a real kind of reworking of what does that really truly mean one and then two, I think there's a there's a lack of knowledge by the general public of understanding how much it costs to build anything mm-hmm. and the resources that are considered and needed to do these types of buildings, even if deferred maintenance. If you look mm-hmm. at existing schools, they're they're in great disrepair. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of schools need that, you know, and Understanding that their deferred maintenance is not just in K through 12, it's also in higher education as well. Buildings require maintenance and they, they mm-hmm. cost money. And I think as a society, we don't, we don't understand that as much as we should. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a few things that your description made me think of. And one of them in particular is this idea that politicians and elected officials live by their election cycles. So it's a lot sexier to be able to cut a ribbon on a new elementary school than to cut a ribbon on the load of toilet paper and cleaning equipment that just came in. So, <laughs> so ta-da, yeah. here we are. Spend yeah. money to build, but not necessarily to maintain. And I think that the this idea that you talk about so eloquently of, of equity, which I think has to be in the context of race and has to be in the context of class, which are the two definers in the United States that are often used to divide. So given all that you know now about the process of public school planning, public school financing, design, and construction of schools, give me a few ideas of things that you would change procedurally that could help have a really positive impact on the the students of North Carolina. So I think one of the key things, which I, I think I alluded to it before with the selection for us for Durham Public Schools mm-hmm. is experience when you're selecting a designer. And this is not just to design. This could be for any other field. Qualification. What does qualification truly mean mm-hmm. in terms of can this person do the job? That's mm-hmm. what it really means. It doesn't mean that they've done if I've done 50 of them. Does that mean that I know everything there is to know about designing K through 12 schools? Maybe, maybe not. I don't think it does. And so I think that's one way to, to you know, I would challenge school districts and facility uh, planners to think beyond risk management. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of times that's the other thing that comes into play is how do we avoid lawsuits and how do we avoid those types of risk? And so if we say we have someone who's done 50 of them, then that uh, that mitigates our risk. So I think that's one thing that could happen. I think there's also just, again, the school board. You brought up a very good point about elections and election cycles and the politics of being elected. What message are you telling people and how do you educate the general public about building and why we build and how mm-hmm. we build and what? metrics are we using to show performance 
and show fiscal performance and then also how are we using that to show what our students how our students are performing in terms of test scores you know we hear about test scores all the time well what does that really mean relative to anything does it you know does the test score truly get us the students who are empowered to go on to you know create whether they go to college or go elsewhere i'm probably jumping around a lot but i do think those are questions that i'm i think we have to ask ourselves in terms of rethinking and recalibrating what the priorities are in terms of building schools. Because I think if we start to look at things as an investment mm-hmm. and that we're really trying to, and I keep going back to this because I, I just, I truly believe in that because if we looked at it that way, as opposed to trying to, you know, all right, I'm going to get on soapbox as a tangent, I'll get back. <laughs> but it, it is very similar, right? If you look at like the stock market and you look at speculation, yes. the moment you get in trouble, is when you basically say, you know what, I'm going to be a speculator and I'm just trying to play the stock market for, you know, a quick buck. Mm-hmm. But if you really want to build wealth, you play the stock market. You don't play the stock market. You invest in the stock market. Mm-hmm. You actually are an investor over the long term as opposed to how can I make money as fast as I can and get as much as I can get. And I think when we look at schools, unfortunately, we've been looking at schools in that way, how do we build them as fast as we can to get as many students as we can get in versus thinking about it from a long term perspective in terms of we're building this school, not just for the next five years, but the next 50 to 100 years. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a great way of thinking about it. I think that was an excellent response because it talked about this idea of perspective and being able to think beyond oneself. And I think that is uh, something that is both useful in planning for schools and many other parts of our country. (laughs) So so thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Edwin. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. And listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience. And please follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves and Redist, and many of our spectacular guests like Edwin on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field, at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Edwin and I have made donations to Diversify Architecture, which is working to introduce students to architecture and design. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kather, and this has been American Building.